You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Nathan Dean. Oh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Look, 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 look. Yep. See there in the lower, I see him. lower right-hand corner? I see him. Nathan uh, Dean. We are streaming live on YouTube.com, by the way. So if you type in uh, Bloomberg Radio in the search on YouTube.com, you can see us. You see uh, me my bright green shirt there, and you'll see Nathan Dean in a moment. Nathan, we got uh, headlines across the terminal that the SEC is going to finally impose these new hedge fund uh, and private equity rules, um, fee disclosure, treatment of certain investors, um, and the hedge fund industry has threatened to sue over this proposal. What do we know? So essentially, this is a proposal that would require the hedge funds and private equity funds, private funds, to disclose a lot of information, including compensation, fees, uh, performance, and so forth like that, expenses. And this is a standardization or a standardized uh, disclosure so that an investor can essentially compare and contrast uh, the performance of one fund versus another. Uh, in, in addition to this, it would also prohibit certain conflicts of interests. One of the more interesting aspects of the proposal is if you're going to cash out a an investor and you're going to give a certain rebate or allow that investor to cash out at a certain percentage, you have to make that available to all different types of investors. Now, like you said before, the Managed Funded Association and the, the trade associations hate this rule. Uh, it's going to be significant costs in terms of compliance headaches. The big funds should be okay, but this is really also going to increase competition amongst, amongst the smaller funds. We certainly anticipate the funds will sue. Uh, you know, They've said that they could sue within the first two weeks. Uh, in fact, the Managed Funds Association's comment letter before it was finalized said that they were attacking the cost-benefit analysis of the rule. For what, those of us in Washington, that's essentially a key word, we're going to sue you. Uh, now, the SEC did make some changes. They actually took out some language that made it a little bit easier for people to sue funds. Uh, but I certainly don't think that's going to keep the MFA and the other types of fund industries from uh, uh, taking this to the courts. So, again, give, just give us the history here, Nathan. Is this a solution in search of a problem, or is there really – concern out there about disclosure from the hedge funds? So I, I think what this is, is that they took a consumer level initiative, which is disclosures to consumers uh, and, and thinking, you know, just the, the not sophisticated investors, but just uh, disclosures to individual consumers. And then they applied that to the, to the private fund industry. Now, the SEC will say, look, there's 18 you know, trillion dollars in assets under management in these funds. Investors need to know what's happening here. But the funds come back and say, look, we're dealing with sophisticated investors. We already give them these types of disclosures anyway. So I'm not exactly sure that the you know, this was really like, I think, the most important rule that the SEC should have been working on. But obviously, it's one of the biggest and more dramatic impacts to the fund industry. Uh, this is something the SEC has wanted to do for a while now, and you know we will uh, see when we get the final language when these funds have to start complying with it. I should also note that if you are a non-U.S. fund, uh, as long as you take in U.S. money or U.S. clients, you're going to have to adhere to this as well. I mean, if they already give them these disclosures, I can't imagine uh, why why compliance costs would climb, right? If, if you already... Uh, are transparent about your fees um, and expenses, then you should just be able to publish that. Um, it seems like they might be fighting back more, Nathan, against rules that would prohibit them from allowing favored investors to cash out more easily than others. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for the big funds, the compliance costs looks, they already do this. But for a lot of smaller funds out there that don't have this type of legal or compliance expertise, they're certainly going to have to ramp up there. But like you said before, I mean, this the biggest issue here is the comparison angle. You know, if there is some type of secret deal that's going on out there, well, that deal now needs to be made public. And if you're going to compare against one fund versus the other, and some of these comparisons also have to go down to the portfolio level. So not just the uh, the entity level, uh, you know, if you're looking to invest in a hedge fund or a private equity fund anytime soon, you're going to get a lot more information on how to make those decisions and competition is going to increase as a result. You know, we've seen some economic evidence. I'm not sure if I actually buy into this, but we've seen some economic evidence cited by the SEC that fees will go down as a result of this. Uh, but, you know, that will have to be played out over the next few years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, yeah. Nathan, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Nathan Dean, he's a senior U.S. policy analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Absolutely spot on this news here. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Eric Edelberg, uh, mortgage-backed security strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joins us. Erica, we had some uh, new home sales data come out today. What, what's, what's your sense of what we saw? Builders are building, it looks like. Yeah, you know, it actually surprised me. We, we saw, I mean, to be fair, uh, this is actually reflecting mortgage prices probably that were maybe prior to the latest jump up. Yep. But uh, we're still seeing the share of new homes increasing. They're about 16% of total sales now. And what the things that surprised me in today's So 16%, data, sorry to interrupt, 16% of total sales, is that higher than average, lower than average? Where are we? Uh, yeah, it was down to like 6% like a couple of years ago. So Right, and, yeah. and so the long-term average, new homes built, maybe 10% of the stuff being bought and sold? Yeah, generally. Okay, so now it's higher Yeah. because Matt's not going to sell his Westchester retreat because he'd have to go. Because I locked in at three and a quarter percent. Darn right. So yeah. that's the problem, right? Or that's right. the issue. Well, the other things that surprised me were the fact that the home prices actually, and these are it's a bit more of a jumpy series than existing home prices, but existing home prices um, and new home prices in the last month's report were more like median prices, call it. Uh, were more or less equal. Usually new homes traded about 25 to 30% higher than existing homes. And then this month it completely reversed. So the median price for the new homes is now like 436 and for the existing homes is now back to 406. So the existing home price fell a little bit um, as you'd expect seasonally, but new home prices actually jumped a bunch uh, from 415 last month to 436 this month. So. That's interesting. So it's not just that they're cutting prices. Erica, what is the 30-year mortgage rate you look at? Because obviously it varies depending on a borrower's credit quality and, you know, the asset, etc. But I see, you know, in official Bloomberg stories, a much lower rate cited than I see on the bank rate 30-year mortgage, right? So um, we're saying 7.3% right now yeah. and sounding the alarm. Meanwhile, the bank rate is over 7.6. Yeah. What, what's well, the rate part, that you look at and why? I, I do like to look at bank rate because it's available daily, uh, mortgage news daily also. But the big difference when you're looking at mortgage rates is looking at what they call effective rates, what you're paying if you hadn't paid points uh, versus what the contract rate is, which is where a lot of people actually take out the mortgage because they are paying points. So once you adjust for the points and look at a no point adjusted rate, it's always closer to the bank rate number. So even even on the MBA 30 year uh, fixed index that they released today, we have an index in Bloomberg that they also released called MB 30 ER, effective rate. And similarly, we back out a no point Freddie Mac rate and those are all above seven and a half percent now. So yeah, mortgage, uh, borrowers might be able to get a lower rate, but that's because they or somebody else uh, is paying points. Now, one of the reasons new home sales has been doing as well as it has is because the builders have come up with this great strategy where they're actually buying down the mortgage rate for a lot of their buyers. So until recently, some buyers were able to get mortgage rates closer to 5%. Um, it's a good deal for the home builder. They don't have to reduce their prices and you know make other people who bought prices at high homes at higher prices mad <laughs> but at the same time it makes it more affordable for new home buyers so so the builders it's not like the builders are 
uh, extending lines of credit to buyers. They're not giving mortgages to buyers. They're just turning to the bank and saying, we'll buy points for them. I mean, in some cases, they have a relationship with a lender. Right. Uh, in a few cases, they actually can probably offer the mortgage. Have their themselves. own financing arms. Yeah, they have their own financing arms. Yeah. It's been a tough month for fixed income. Really tough month for mortgage-backed securities off 2.6%. What's, what's it like out there in, in the MBS market these days? It's it's probably pretty tough for some investors. It's an interesting time for strategists. Yep. But one of the things I'm looking at this morning is actually just how different the current coupon, which is kind of where things are being issued, is versus the mortgage index. Um, and while the mortgage index has underperformed because it's very long duration now because people are just sitting on their mortgages forever, yep. Matt, <laughs> I, will, um, I will be on it for 30 uh, years. So, yeah. so from a duration standpoint, it's going to trade pretty similarly to the 10-year uh, treasury, if you will. Um, in fact, mortgage spreads for the whole index aren't widening that much. The same divergence between what you said about where mortgages are being issued right now versus what most people have is reflected in the mortgage index. So right now, the current coupon or where the yield equals the coupon around par is above 6% for the first time, again, for many, many okay. years. Uh, but the mortgage index coupon is below 3%. Oh, all right, there and you so go. And so that, yep. yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's not underperforming, but yep. yeah. All right, Erica, great stuff again. Erica Edelberg, MBS strategist, Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So it looks like B of A slash Merrill... They're trying to make a push on across their trading business. What did you find out? So it's funny. B of A, second largest bank by assets. But when you talk to folks across Wall Street about trading, they're not the first name that comes up in conversation. And really, that just comes down to their risk tolerance. Since the financial crisis, since they bought Merrill, since there's been so much integration, they've kind of held back. And while they're still serving clients and they are one of the largest firms that is trading uh, with buy side investors, um, they're not taking as much market share as, let's say, J.P. Morgan. Right. Um, but that's starting to change. Uh, about three years ago, they named a new head, Jim DeMar. He took over for Tom Montag, who was really running that trading business along with investment banking. And in the last three years, they've added uh, some talent, some key talent from those firms that take 
uh, riskier bets from Goldman, Morgan Stanley. Um, and they've also been able to get more capital. They went all the way up to, to CEO Moynihan, uh, to their head of risk, um, to ask uh, for basically more room to run. And while they're still in a, in a narrower risk tolerance um, than others, with more capital and with these key hires, they've been able to slowly chip away and gain more market share over the last two, three years. So have they built up a bigger team? Um, I know there is a speech, at least I read in a Bloomberg story, that there was a speech last year where DeMar said, listen, if, you, uh, if you're not willing to give it your all and, you know, work your butt off to, to build this business, you might want to work somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. So about a year ago is when he gave that speech. And it was after second quarter results where some of the other banks had posted pretty impressive results um, within fixed income, especially this was after the war in Ukraine had broke out. And you had banks on Wall Street taking advantage of all that volatility. They were helping clients place bets tied to Russia. Bank of America did not. They had um, a mandate from high up that said, you guys got to hang back. You can't get involved in these types of trades. You can help clients unwind their positions, but you can't help people profit and we can't profit off of this war. So this was why Jim was getting up and saying, hey, we have progress that we still have to make. And that comment was made to his group, the entire trading team to say, if you're not willing to put your best foot forward and to act, uh, maybe not aggressively in the in the form of taking more risk, but you got to be willing to, to be top three, um, then yeah, maybe you should should look elsewhere. And he's not making this statement to say, here's the door um, and you should be go going to, to somewhere else. Get out of here. He's just saying we want to have people that really want to be here and that we want to um, make make headway. And one year later, they they have they've shown that their second quarter results this year. So this is one year after the, the kind of tepid results they saw a year ago. Um, they were up 10 percent when all the other banks on Wall Street were down. Um, now, that's also because you're comparing it to the record quarter again a year ago post the war in Ukraine. Um, so it, it's, it's really going to be a story that um, we'll keep tracking. And if this group can continue to maintain the growth and, and the market share that they have chipped away at again, then it might be something that they are able to sustain. But that's still a question mark. It's not a foregone, foregone conclusion. You know, when I was at Merrill, we were going to go pitch a company, a public company on a follow on offering. And uh, one of the things was we wanted to be a top trader in stock. We want to say we were your number, number one trader, which we weren't. We were like three, third, third or fourth. So I went down. My job was to go down and talk to the trader who was probably my same age young. And they said, you know, if you can, we'd appreciate it if you could take a bigger profile on XYZ stock. From that day forward until we pitched the IPO in like two months, number one every single, every single day trading the stock. And that's mm -hmm. just a commitment of capital. You know, so mm -hmm. that trader, that desk was willing to put up the capital to make our jobs of getting the following offering easier, which we did get uh, and made a big print. Looking at the comp function, though, for the stock, B of A is kind of flat over the last five years. Morgan Stanley up 15%, Goldman Sachs up 9%. So if you go to Brian Moynihan now, mm -hmm. do you feel like, if I'm a trader and I ask for some more capital, you think he's going to be more open to that? So there's a lot that's changed in the last um, year, and capital has become more constrained across Wall Street. Um, but the bank, if you if you were to ask them, I'm sure that they would say, we have enough cash on the balance sheet. They um, will show you that with the numbers. Um, and they will say that if the capital is needed and the group, whether it's the trading group or the investment banking group, comes to us and, and has a good pitch and, and they explain why they need what they need, we'll give it to them. Um, but I, I think that that's probably getting harder to do. Those pitches need to be pretty clear, pretty persuasive. Um, but what you just described is exactly what they're trying to focus on, which is uh, making sure that the groups within this huge organization are working together. So if you have someone in investment banking that's working with a client, um, that's a corporate client, and they need to hedge their uh, risks, whether it's um, their currency risk or their rates, they're going to want to say, hey, you should talk to our trader who can help you out. Um, and I think that when you have such a big organization, this is not specific to B of A, but anywhere, um, often communication lines can break down. So they're just trying to communicate better in order to uh, either get uh, clients to interact with them more or to tap new clients that they might not even know that they can be working with and that they should be working with. So who's the best and biggest trading desk on the street and what do they do right? 
Well, right now, uh, J.P. Morgan does have the the most market share, and that's been kind of the same for uh, as long as I've tracked this. But it's least. really it, which it, isn't the longest time. But. No, it's long, but yet they have the big capital behind them. It's all about how much capital you can put up. So J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. You know, those are things. And if you're Merrill Lynch, and you've got the Bank of America balance sheet, but as uh, Catherine is just re- reporting, less less ready to put up you know some incremental capital here but maybe that's changing a little bit so uh but it's good stuff i remember it just took me like 45 minutes to find where this kid sat on the trading floor that's how <laughs> big the maryland's trading floor was and how many people were there i had to find it you know it's crazy uh but anyway that was a good good story Catherine, thanks so much for the reporting here that story just jumped off the terminal for me this morning Catherine doherty finance reporter for bloomberg news bank of america uh merrill lynch uh the thundering herd of merrill lynch maybe stepping up a little bit more on the margin You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The question I have is, why are all these countries tripping over themselves to get to the moon? Did we do that, like, more than 50 years ago? I don't know what the big deal is, but our next guest will help us out here. Lauren Grush, Space reporter. That's right. Bloomberg has a space reporter. Why? Because we have 2,400 journalists around the world. We cover everything, everywhere. In 150 countries. But also, I mean, it's a, it's a huge and emerging It's a business. Now. Industry. It I is. I mean, look, uh, I think... Um, it's not just NASA anymore. I, let, let me ask Lauren. I'm pretty sure... Lauren, first of all, hello. Welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks, didn't Daddy. Elon Musk and SpaceX just raise new money at an even higher valuation in what is, for most uh, startups, a down market? Uh, they did, but they also have quite a, a lot on their plate in terms of what they're trying to develop. You know, they're working on Starship, which is this massive vehicle that's supposed to take uh, humans and cargo into deep space and to the moon, as you guys have been talking about. And um, they're also expanding when it comes to their Starlink initiative as well. So they they have quite a lot to work on. And so that's ultimately why part of the reason why they, they did that raise. All right, Lauren. So help me out here. What's the attraction to the South Pole of the moon? We had Russia crash, didn't quite do it. But India today reported a successful landing. What are they after? Right. So the South Pole of the moon has been a bit of a tantalizing place for scientists over the last few years because more and more research has come out and evidence has come out that the region might have large quantities of water ice and these permanently shadowed cratered regions. So areas that never see the sun, they get extremely cold. And that's uh, that's tantalizing for people, especially those looking to send humans to the moon because there's the possibility that we could mine this water ice and use it as resources. We could use it as drinking water. We could use it as uh, water for for plants if we wanted to grow crops on the moon for uh, uh, lunar habitat. And it could also be used as rocket fuel. You can break apart water into its constituents and to make it into fuel that could be used to send rockets off of the moon. The issue is we just don't know what kind of form the water ice is in, how much is there. So we need to get there in order to prospect and to see, you know, is this a viable option to use for future uh, exploration initiatives? So um, older listeners, Lauren, are going to be wondering, is this the dark side of the moon? Nice. Um, I, I don't know, like, about the polarity. Oops. And apparently one side of the moon never... Uh, what, never faces the Earth? Or what's the story with yes. that? So it's not the dark side of the moon. There actually is no dark side of the moon. I hate to break that news uh, to everyone. What? Yes. You are correct, though. There is a far side of the moon that we never see from Earth because it is tidally, the moon is tidally locked, and so it is constantly facing our planet in one direction. So you might be very familiar with the face that faces us. You may not be so familiar with the face. And the South face. Pole is where? Is that do, do we see that one? or? We do. We see parts of it, but um, yes, it, it is within our part of it. Was, is it within our sight? All right, listen. Tucker's laughing at us because he know. knows all this stuff. He does. I but know because he watches know. YouTube videos on this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, Lauren, you're a space reporter. What are the big stories that you're kind of following? What are the themes that you're following as it relates to your space beat? Well, you know, there's quite a bit going on. As you've mentioned, the moon is a very popular place these days. So. 
you know, it's not just India, not just Russia that are looking to go back. The U.S. is actively looking to go back to the moon. Um, a lot of those efforts stem from the from NASA's Artemis program, which is uh, a concerted effort to send the first woman and the first person of color to the surface of the moon. Um, right now, they're targeting the landing in 2025. I think um, that is extremely ambitious and doubtful that it will be achieved, but that that is the outward goal at the moment. Um, and then through that initiative, there are a lot of uh, private companies that are also hoping to send their robotic spacecraft to the moon. So we have Astrobotic and Intuitive Machines who are also trying to reach this region of the moon uh, with their own uh, uncrewed landers. And those are supposed to happen. Those are supposed to launch before the end of the year. Lauren, well, why why is it so hard? Place. I don't get, you know, we by 2025, couldn't we do it next week? We did it in the 60s. <laughs> Um, I hate to wars. break it to everyone, but it's still quite hard to reach the moon. Uh, it, it, you know, yes, it is something that we did in the 60s, but you have to understand we were we had increased NASA's budget significantly at the time. There was an extreme focus on reaching the moon during that time. You know, we put a lot of resources into it. And so now we don't really have that same sense of urgency. And NASA is working with a much lower budget than it had at the time uh, the, the space race was going on. Yeah, so, but, my, but my Nintendo Wii has more computing power than <laughs> NASA did back then. I mean, that's true. That's true. And, and that's and that's ultimately why we're making a lot of strides in terms of, you know, who is able to reach the moon um, with these with the, those companies I just mentioned. They're hoping to be the first commercial companies to reach the surface of the moon that title has not been claimed yet so far it's only been nation states um but ultimately you know we are getting there it's just taking a while and we're trying to do it in a in a smarter way um that doesn't rely on you know that yep. big influx of cash so lauren it of all the private companies out there, because that's what's different from when I was a kid and, and we were all fixated on NASA and we all wanted to be astronauts back in the day, private space travel, are there viable economic models out there? I mean, how do the, any of these companies, is it space tourism? Is it just taking garbage out there? I mean, what are we doing? I mean, I think that's ultimately the, the prime question right now as more and more companies are trying to turn space into a business. Can these businesses make money? The answer we're getting from the few companies that have gone public is not uh, not a lot. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, they're bringing some are bringing in revenue, some are not even bringing in revenue. It's a very hard market to break through in because it, it does require a lot of capital up front and to develop these vehicles and these capabilities takes many, many years. It's besought with delays. And so, you know, we are in an era that we're trying to prove that we can, um, you know, make these companies into viable businesses, but there's going to be a lot of um, casualties along the way, uh, business casualties, yep, not yep, human yes, casualties. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, I think it still remains to be seen if these companies can really turn a significant profit. And is it, and Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, you know, a couple of gajillionaires, they're all in on this business. Um, I, I guess it, it kind of feels for a lot of, to a lot of critics that it's just kind of a billionaire's game out there for, for space. And, you know, is there any other real model out there? Well, you have to understand we've been, we've been in the business of space for a really long time. The earlier models uh, focused more on defense contractors, you know, uh, building these vehicles and, and help right. with NASA, um, but they were not as vertically integrated as some of these newer players. You know, that seems to be one of the bigger changes that Elon and Jeff and these other companies are implementing is uh, vertical integration. So th keeping everything in-house. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, these companies require a lot of capital. And so that's ultimately what they are able to help with, you know, the billionaires is being able to give that kind of big cash injection up front and to help out whenever, you know, money is tight. All right, Lauren, you're a graduate of the University of Texas. Are you one of those crazy Longhorn uh, alumni? 
I'm sorry. Are, are we crazy? I think we're normal, uh, regular college graduates. Okay, because we have uh, Jess Metton who comes in here and does a lot of work with us reporting on the equities at Texas A&M grad. So um, she's the only oh, one in her family well, that we, defected. I can't, I can't speak to that. Okay. <laughs> hey, what's the next cool uh, launch you're going to go watch? Do you go down there and watch those? I do. I've, I've been to quite a few, um, you know, Kennedy Space Center is kind of my second home sometimes. <laughs> um, I'm based in Austin, Texas, though, and uh, SpaceX has been building their Starship vehicle down in Boca Chica, which is on the border of Texas and Mexico. And I have been there to see their first test launch. We're gearing up for that second test launch. Uh, SpaceX is going through the motions of kind of fixing what went wrong during the first one. They're undergoing tests. But signs seem to be pointing that we could be seeing another test launch from Texas in the near future. So we're just right. getting ready for that and seeing how that will go. All right. Lauren Grush, Sweet. space reporter, Bloomberg News, hook em horns, right? Another big football season coming up, and I'm sure they're all fired up down there. I love that we have a space reporter. That's so cool. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You want to get right to our next guest because there's a million ways we can go. Rania Sedholm uh, joins us. She's a managing partner of Sedholm Law Group. Um, a lot of things to talk about, Ronnie, but I'd like to start with uh, something near and dear to my heart, which is the media companies and the Hollywood studios the strikes with the writers and the actors. And I, where are we on this thing? Because it seems like both sides are really entrenched, although I believe the studios did come with a proposal uh, that seemed reasonable to me, but I'm not involved, so. Well, I, I think that both are holding pretty steadfast in the direction that they want to go. I don't think... Anything has been resolved at all since I've last been here or since the strike went underway. Uh, it is true that the studios did propose uh, some changes. However, I believe the union wouldn't come to the table, which is, you know, a, a way of rejecting it outright. Yeah. Uh, and so these... So there have been no talks. They haven't been in the same room officially. I don't believe so, no. No, but this, they came back with what I thought were certainly, I don't know what the word is, but they were substantive. They addressed a lot of issues. Whether I, they went far enough as the the, the yes. union, I don't know. But if I were the the studios and I put this on the table, I would certainly expect a, a professional response, wouldn't I? You would, and uh, that's why I'm not a negotiator. Yeah, the, the negotiating table has to be uh, went to in good faith under the National Labor Relations Board rules. You can't just 
refuse to engage in any kind of discord. However, uh, if someone comes back to you with what you deem is a wholly unreasonable solution, you can take the position that I guess that's what the union is taking at this time. But you're right, everything was addressed. Whether or not it was addressed properly or thoroughly enough for the union, I guess the answer is no. Ronnie, let's just reset for listeners who haven't been following this very closely. Um, you work with the actors side and what are what are the demands that they've made um you know just you know elementary in sort of the elementary demands what exactly do they want well i think some of the celebrities who i represent they're individuals just uh, to be clear for the listeners they want to protect themselves and their image they don't want you to be able to take whatever image you've seen in a movie a tv show or whatnot and just change it Right. I mean, AI can do so much. We don't even realize uh, as the viewers, but you don't need to take additional takes, for example. You can just use whatever take was provided and then uh, make whatever changes you want to change as long as you have the image of the person, the motion of the person, and the tone and sound of the person, which clearly you would have when you take your first take. So I think they want to protect themselves uh, from being seen incorrectly, right? Because who knows what you're gonna do with the image, but also it's about money as well. Every time uh, their image is used, they want to receive a royalty. And I think that's like a huge debate right now. You know, what are we paying for exactly? And typically contracts do state, we control this image that you've provided us with, whatever it is for the show, for anything, in whatever medium exists now or shall exist. So we don't even know what else is coming after AI. Well, that's even, that's in, I would say, most content areas. So for example, as a research analyst on Wall Street, I did not own my research. It belonged to the firm I work for. The models I created, the earnings models belong not to me, but to the company. And so what you'd see before any analyst went from company A to company B is he or she would take their earnings models, which they created, Download them to the little floppy disk so they could take them to the next spot, which was a no-no, that is but nice. everybody does it. If you do that, I might send you a nasty letter. Yes, okay. exactly. Or Paul should maybe hire you. you know? Yes, exactly. Um, but so that's, isn't that kind of, is that law already created and already exists? We're just now applying it to a different medium, it, I guess? Yes, in a way that is true, but no one anticipated what you can do with this technology. So for example, right. if you uh, sent me research and I, let's say I discarded it or I changed it, I may not attribute it to you. Right. And so your, uh, your, your research findings, if they were not what I wanted, you're, you're left out of it. Nobody yep. knows about it. Here, right. it's your picture, it's your voice, yep. it's your movement, and we're doing something with it. And you may or may, dis- may, or may not agree with it. Right, so it's that's something, different. that's yep. one of the things that they want you to change. Then on the money side, you know, there's, I think um, we don't understand exactly how much money, for example, SAG-AFTRA uh, estimates that these streaming companies are making. Um, their representative was telling Paul that she thinks they're making $30 billion a year in profit. But when we look at these earnings reports, that's not uh, readily apparent. So um, is that something that needs to be solved? How much money they're making off streaming or does it just not matter to, to your clients? They, they want a, a bigger take anyway. Well, honestly, money's always a factor. So I think, of course, that does matter. And I think that there's, I don't know if it's a worldview, but certainly a US view that the gap between the owners and in this case, they're not employees, but we'll just use that analogy, uh, should be smaller. All right, so is this something, like when we think about AI and all the uses and therefore misuses that could be had of AI, Mm -hmm. does law need to be created, do you think? Or just existing laws applied to a much wider view now because of AI? I think laws should be created, but I think it's also too early. Who really can stand up and say, I thoroughly understand this technology and how it works? You can't create a law around something you don't comprehend. And what makes these discussions with the the actors and the writers is, you know, I think an an executive could stand up. I would defend a a media executive standing up and saying, I don't know what this stuff is worth. I don't know how we're going to generate revenue off of this stuff. Mm -hmm. All I can tell you is when we think it up, you'll get your cut. 
so you write up the language that does that is what <laughs> that, I would do. Yes, that that could be uh, one way, but it's always the devil that's you know in yep, the details, sure. and everybody wants those details. But I think you can start from a contractual uh, position moving forward that says I'm not giving you rights to my entire likeness. I'm only giving you rights to this particular season, movie, whatever. Yep. Uh, we can define it and slice it differently. I, I don't know. I, I think it's something, well, I don't know. I think there's language I think there's language out there that they can get things done, but it seems like uh, there's not, not, not a lot of movement there. So we'll keep on, mm -hmm. on top of this uh, thing in Hollywood, the whole AI uh, issue, which is just you know mind-numbing to think about where this could all go and the applications of AI uh, across a range of industries. And the lawyers got to figure it out. Rania said home. like Rania. Exactly. Great to have you in the studio, Rania. Thanks so Thank much for joining you. us. It's awesome. Rania Sedholm, managing a partner at Sedholm Law Group, uh, live in a Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Scott Kelly joins us. He's a founder and CEO of Atos Capital Real Estate. But Scott, thanks for coming into our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. But I want to get this dude was at Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, Dean Witter. Now, for people who don't know, of the investment banks, Morgan Stanley has always been is the biggest player, I think, in commercial real estate. When I think about investment banks swinging it around in commercial real estate, I think of these guys. So you were there during the heyday. You're now at Atos Capital. Um, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. All right. Commercial real estate. You keep, I walk to Penn Station every day. Nobody's in their office. It's dark. I don't, I've never seen it like this. Nobody's ever seen it like this. But at some point, some smart people are going to come in and say, this enough's is enough. This is, the, this is where you start buying. Can you talk to us how you guys view the commercial real estate business? Well, I think there are a number of factors that are cutting against uh, any kind of rapid improvement in the commercial real estate. And we're talking business. specifically office here, right? Well, yeah, and more generally, but but basically real estate's a cyclical business. You know, office is probably the most cyclical of all, uh, that in retail. Um, and I think everybody agrees whether it's a soft landing or hard landing, we're at a difficult time in the uh, economic cycle. Um, second, there are huge secular and demographic shifts. Yep. Um, one of the reasons New York offices are emptier because a lot of people are leaving New York. Um, and again, those, those shifts impact different real estate classes vastly differently. So as an example, office and retail have been hurt by the secular shift to work from home and online shopping and, uh, and, and and warehouses, logistics facilities have done well. Yeah. So, so, so Scott, let's throw in rates because it's not yeah. just these demographics. It's also you're making the point that the cost of capital or the Fed funds rate has basically gone up 500 percent. I mean, that's got to create a lot of pain. Well, I think there are two aspects to that. One, you've got an unbelievable amount of commercial real estate debt maturity, something like 750 billion in the next year. Um, and something like 1.7 trillion in the next four years. Um, and a lot of those loans were made in essentially a zero interest rate environment, and they're not refinanceable at 7%. You know, they're just not. So you've got this enormous amount of debt maturity coming, very high interest rates, and it's going to create a I think a great investing opportunity when things and a, and get a reset. Cheap. I mean, I ha happen to be involved in a small family. Uh, real estate uh, company undersell ah, it here in Columbus, in Columbus, Ohio, and we have um, a lot of uh, office space, uh, mostly medical, thankfully, and we have also uh, a lot of student housing for the Ohio, Ohio State, State University. University. Um, but I know that you know our refis are going to be very difficult at these levels, and I, I'm hoping that you know we can get through it, but there's going to be other family real estate uh, trusts that are not going to be able to refi, and they're going to have to sell to somebody who has money. Yes, and interestingly, uh, when you're talking about Columbus, which it has a very strong economy because of the university, because of the state, because it you know it's a good place to work and live, um, there are a lot of cities like that that are that will be okay. You know, the the demographic shifts don't cut against the Columbus Ohio's. They don't cut against the 
big cities in Florida, you know, um, but they do cut against the high tax, increasingly crime-ridden big cities of the north. So um, certainly they're going to be different. You know, real estate is still a local game, and there are going to be different impacts on, on different uh, uh, property types and markets. But certainly there are going to be lots of people that aren't going to be able to refinance the debt. Um, and interestingly, in, in previous crashes in the late 80s and early 90s, that was driven by the SNLs, which were essentially put out of business, and the big money center banks, which had too much exposure. In 08, it was Wall Street, which had a lot more leverage than anybody thought because of essentially derivatives and, and, and other matters. Are the regional banks going to have, I mean, I know, well, Huntington just got a big bond issue out yesterday, right? But right. There, there are some regional banks that have been downgraded by S&P and Moody's. There's some regional banks that probably have too many hold to maturity uh, bonds in their portfolio. I mean, are, they're going to be uh, tightening their credits. That's exactly your, the right point. You yeah. know, that, that the big money center banks are okay. If you look at their commercial real estate exposure relative to their loans, you know, they've kind of learned their lesson. The problems are going to be in the midsize and the smaller banks where, particularly during the COVID era, there wasn't a lot of commercial loan demand, and they made a heck of a lot of real estate loans. Uh. And they made them, in a lot of cases, to people unlike your family, but a lot of people <laughs> that weren't particularly good. So um, they're going to be uh, – the, the, the problem is going to be not as concentrated as it was in the crisis of, of – you know, the, the late 90s, um, the late 80s, early 90s, as concentrated as it was in 2008, but very widespread because of the fact that these loans sit in medium to smaller sized banks around the country. So you're making some really big comparisons there from a cyclical standpoint. So going back to the idea that you think that there's going to be this huge opportunity, some of the dominoes have to start to fall. Uh, when do you see that happening? How long does this distress cycle happen? And is your firm, how do you, how do you actually go about this? Are there properties that you're identifying, modeling out, and then you're ready to jump on when they potentially uh, go into distress? Well, we've formed a new company um, called Wavertree Property Partners with a group uh, called PTM, uh, guys that I've worked with for a long time. They're great developers because, um, and they've developed 22 billion and, and invested in 22 billion with their predecessor companies, and now is an independent company. Very strong, you know, kind of dirt under the fingernail type real estate folks. And we think that a lot of these opportunities are going to involve not just buying things cheap, you know, not just, you know, we buy it at 10 cents on the dollar and hold it out for a little while and send it, sell it at 20 cents on the dollar. But because of these projects needing real work, because um, a lot are, are ill-conceived, uh, a lot of buildings are going to be have to be repurposed, um, we formed this venture to really... Uh, both be a partner to existing financial institutions which have problems and to uh, you know raise additional outside capital to augment our capital and in investing in these so you, situations. So you believe in this so much that you're raising capital for it and what's so interesting about it Scott because of course I know that ATOS you've only been in Asia over the last 20 years 10 billion dollars of real estate over there but you think that this opportunity is so attractive as painful as it could be that you're forming this new. Yes exactly I, look I think Japan we have really scaled um, our, our Asian operation to invest solely in Japan. We put uh, you know, 600 billion of equity into China over the past 15 years. Every deal we did made money. I wouldn't do another one of them ever yeah. again. Ooh, it's wow. just, yeah, well, it's okay. too painful. Um, Japan is a place I think where in a slow growth, um, stable economy, uh, they don't have the work from home uh, mentality that we have here. Uh, they, they, people go to the office more. Um, so, um, you know, we think that that's kind of a, a, with reasonable risk, a good place to earn kind of low to mid-teen returns, um, which is a good thing. But we see this opportunity in the U.S. as being exponentially bigger um, with the possibility of, of making really significant money if you can combine the financial acumen of being able to underwrite this stuff with the operational skills to reposition, to, um, uh, to, to, to repurpose, in a lot of cases, uh, properties that need to be significantly changed. So, Scott, do you think your new, this new group will be acquiring 
properties, real properties, or the debt of distressed properties, or both? How, how do you think you're going to deploy your capital? You know, just over my whole career in doing this, you have to be flexible as to what the seller wants. Okay. You know, in some cases, the seller wants to just sell the loan, be done with <laughs> it, move on. You guys, you know, take them through bankruptcy or do whatever you're going to do. Right. Yeah, and we've done a lot of that. In other cases, they're like, just bid us the the the, the debt or the, the, the asset, yep. and we'd like to get rid of those. In some cases, it's a big portfolio. We want to take care of everything in one fell swoop. You have to be able to be flexible to what the seller all right. is its objective. This is just a personal question that I'm dying to know. In a city like New York City, if a big trophy property on Fifth Avenue or Lexington commercial property were to trade today, what percentage haircut would it be from pre-pandemic, do you Good think? Good question. Well, again, I think a lot of that has to do with the quality of the asset. Yeah, um, yeah but the trophy property, they're still going for not a discount, right? Right. Yes, but exactly. But B and C, how about the B and C? Third Avenue. All that stuff on Third Avenue. Yeah. From, Junk. From, no, it's not junk. It, it was, it's not. My question is like on that stuff in Grand Central up here, that's, you know, last 20, 30 years construction. Yeah, no. Um, hedge fund hotels up until 15 minutes ago. You know, I, I think it's interesting. The, the really high quality buildings, one of the things, um, I was just at an event over the GM building a couple of weeks ago, yep. they are heavily amenitizing office okay. buildings now. Um, if you look at one Vanderbilt, you know, they yeah, have that's great awesome. restaurants. They have great amenities for the you know for the tenants and i think you know i think that's the way you really compete uh hudson yards would fall into that see, category i'm just waiting to see something a but, big property trade i don't know if it's gonna be 30 cents on the dollar 50 cents on the dollar 60 cents on the dollar when Part, do you think we see the trade because that's exactly well, the it, anticipation yeah it's, it's when the debt comes due yep. <laughs> and it can't be refinanced right. that's when you see the trade all right scott thanks so much for joining us we got to go but uh fascinating we want to hear back when you get this thing rolling scott kelly founder and ceo of Atos Capital Real Estate. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.